Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In our episodes, we explore the impact of key international developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. Mobility is becoming a serious challenge around the world in 2022, given the Russian war in Ukraine and the end of most pandemic restrictions. But are the solutions some governments are proposing actually working? We've invited three people to answer this and other questions. Joining us in the studio is Dirk von Schneidemesse of Changing Cities, an initiative specializing in democratic sustainability transformation. Hi, Dirk. Welcome. Good morning. Online, we're joined by GMF Senior Fellow Peter Chase in Brussels and by author Katja Deal, who hosts the podcast She Drives Mobility and whose book is called Autocorrect, Mobility for a World Worth Living in. Welcome to both of you. Good morning. Thank you very much. Peter, let's start with you. Even before the war, the EU was determined to make mobility more sustainable to reduce carbon emissions. So this month, the European Parliament voted on a crucial set of laws called Fit for 55. Can you tell us what that does? The European Union has declared that it will be carbon neutral by 2050. In order to get there, by 2035, it's going to reduce its emissions by 55%. They are the first country not only to write this into their law as something they have to do, but they've also said very clearly how they want to do it. The Commission has made these proposals in the Fit for 55 package. One of the key proposals in them is to actually effectively phase out the internal combustion engine to go purely to electric vehicles. This would be, of course, a major change for mobility. The European Parliament was voting on that, and it was something where they've tightened it even further beyond the Commission's uh, original proposal in terms of phasing out even alternatives to uh, moving to an e-vehicle sort of basis. It will be very interesting to watch, but it will change the face of mobility in Europe, in the cities, and in the countryside. But does the end of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine negate some of the gains Fit for 55 is promising? I mean, we're looking at fuel prices and inflation surging and a growing course of officials, especially in Eastern Europe, calling for more coal use. The war in Ukraine changes a lot, and it changes a lot because, as you said, it makes fossil fuels more expensive. You could actually argue, and many of the people in the debate in the European Parliament did argue, that in fact, what's happening in Ukraine and the relationship with Russia is forcing the move even faster away from fossil fuels, away from Russian oil and gas, and moving into a sustainable approach based on electricity. It's going to be a very tall order because this transition between the world that we have today based on the internal combustion engine when it comes to a lot of personal mobility to a world that's more sustainable is not an easy one. It's very complicated and there's a lot to do. Katya, what do you think about what Brussels is doing? Should it be the one focusing on creating sustainable mobility or is it something that should be handled at the national level by the individual countries? To be honest, I'm very happy uh, to have the EU because they are pushing us forward in Germany. I think um, our country is really car-centric orientated. And so that we are stepping out of uh, the fossil fuel engine right now is coming from the EU. It's not coming from us. So I think it's both sides of it. We need both of them. But the push of the EU is really good. Given the skyrocketing costs and the impending shortage of certain fuels, Germany's traffic light coalition is looking for new options and new ways to reduce fuel consumption. One of the measures that they're trying 
uh, that's pretty new is the reduced monthly ticket, the nine euro ticket uh, that works not only for the city transits, but also regional trains throughout Germany. What has been the response so far? Is, is the nine euro ticket working in your opinion? I really like how many people are now talking about this kind of flat rate. Uh, because it's the first ticket we ever got in Germany just to travel as we want to. Normally, you have to buy tickets in regions or in cities, and now you can do it from the sea to the Alps. And um, I also used it, and I was so much in communication with the people who are traveling with me in the train. It was really a nice like adventure. But I think um, the failure is that it will end also like three months after the three months it's over because Volker Wissing, our minister already told us it's not affordable anymore for the ministry and that's something I think that can't change uh, mobility patterns because when you see that it's just three months you don't um, have an effect on routines you're doing every day so I'm really looking forward for the people who sold this like millions and millions that they are reaching out for our minister to make this happen again. Dirk, what do you think? Berlin's BVG system was already strained um, before the nine-euro ticket came along. Are they actually able to deal with the volume of traffic that it's generating? I mean, yeah, as you say, it was strained already. Um, the thing is, of course, that we need more trains. We need more uh, train tracks. We need longer trains. We need longer platforms to be able to get in and out of these trains. That's something that doesn't happen overnight. It's also something that doesn't happen, unfortunately, um, in three months. That applies to Berlin, but that applies to uh, Germany as a whole as well. Fortunately, this offer, the nine euro ticket, is happening in the summer when people have a few more options. And in the winter, of course, uh, the trains, it would be even more of a squeeze, uh, shall we say. And so I think it's a good measure. What it shows us is that a lot of people are ready and want to take the train if the price is right. And that readiness to switch the way that we move about um, is something that we should that we can definitely learn from the nine euro ticket. But we need to increase uh, the attractivity, especially of the BVG, the trains in Berlin, but also the trains in all of Germany. And we need to increase the capacities um, and of course, we need to uh, hire more people to be able to deal with this demand. <laughs> There's definitely a shortage of personnel. And uh, I've noticed a definite increase in the volume of people <laughs> who are on, yeah. the, on the trams and subways. And it's, uh, it's sometimes it's disconcerting, especially since we're not technically out of the pandemic <laughs> yet. But, uh, but yes, it's definitely a, a step in the right direction. And people are encouraged. But let me ask you about another passion of yours, cycling. And certainly cyclists have been frustrated with the crowds on the trains in recent weeks. Uh, people have been actually asked to get off the train if they have a bike, if it's super crowded. So is that discouraging people from using bicycles? And if so, how much of a blow is that to plans for sustainable mobility because obviously cycling is part of that. Yeah, cycling is definitely part of that. Cycling is one of the, the few uh, modes of transport that we can really increase uh, the capacity for very quickly by simply repurposing street space. Currently, for example, in Berlin, about 60% uh, of the street space is dedicated to automobile use, whereas for cyclists, it's only 3%. That being said, it's uh, just under a third of trips that are taken with automobiles. And with cycling, it's about 18% and growing. Um, and it's been growing over the past years in spite of the lack of bike lanes. Berlin has set itself some ambitious goals with the mobility law 
that uh, Changing Cities initiated with Berlin Bicycle Referendum, but they are not really implementing this at the rate that they need to. One example for, is that by 2030, according to the law, we need bike lanes with an adequate width on every main street. So that means 650 about uh, kilometers of cycle lanes. And last year in 2021, we made uh, in Berlin about six and a half kilometers. So at that rate, we need about 100 years to finish implementing the goals that Berlin has set for itself. And I don't see the people in the administrations. I don't see uh, the budgets being set ready for this. So there's a lot of things that we need to do to even uh, pretend like we're taking this goal seriously. So the 100 kilometers they're promising in eight years, you just don't see that happening. Uh, the 650 kilometers of uh, cycle lanes on all main streets is the one thing. I don't see that happening. The 100 kilometers that you're referring to, I think, is for the cycle um, the network, highways think, right. um, that really allow, for example, also a shift for commuters who live maybe in the outer districts uh, to commute quickly, comfortably and safely uh, by the bicycle into the inner districts. Um, and... That has been put under the purview of the state-owned um, InfraVelo, uh, which is a company basically founded by the state to take over this uh, mammoth task. Um, and what we see there is also they are not uh, holding the deadlines. Um, so there are these uh, like feasibility studies, I guess, that are required to determine how, when, uh, uh, where these uh, cycle highways can be built. And the deadlines for those, uh, they would have had to happen, all of them, about now. Um, and there are a lot of them that have not even been begun yet. So that's, it's a problem. I don't see us uh, making it on time unless we really up the tempo a lot. Katya, what do you think about that? Are you similarly skeptical about Berlin's uh, ability to live up to its promises when it comes to cycling? Yeah, it's for me, uh, as Dirk also pointed out, uh, also a question of people who are doing this because there's a lack of people who are now um, yeah, acting in Berlin to make it uh, really happen. And I really was a bit uh, annoyed that I know that uh, the FDP, a really conservative uh, party of Germany, now owns the Ministry of Traffic. And um, yeah, I think we need the Greens to push them forward. And also the Greens in Berlin are really making a good job, but they have to handle the other parties also. So I think, <laughs> sorry to say, I'm also a bit skeptic. Yeah. And what about car sharing? Is that an underutilized, under discussed form of sustainable mobility, especially if the cars are electric or are cars in general a problem and we should be trying to get away from every version of car driving mobility? Of course, I think there will always be cars. But in Germany, you have the problem that um, uh, the car industry is doing some of the products of car sharing. Volkswagen is pushing uh, electric uh, car sharing system, but they are um, now occupying the, the possibilities to get the energy for the engines. So I think um, you should all put this into public hands. It's not about a car industry to change mobility to get away from the owned car. And I think also in rural areas, it's a really good approach to have some um, yeah, car sharing because you have this kind of uh, households who are now owning maybe three or four cars and you can, rid of, can get rid of it. Like the fourth car can go away and you can have it like car sharing. 
Diok, do you think that's feasible? I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining anyone in Germany giving up their car. I mean, do you, <laughs> and car sharing only seems to exist in cities. I mean, I'd be one who would be happy to, to get a car share and drive uh, out to Brandenburg even. <laughs> you can't really do that. I mean, I would, uh, I would tend to agree with Katya. Um, th- I think that it is a part of the mobility transformation. Um, there are some promising examples and, and some very positive examples of car sharing uh, in less urban spaces, so in, in more uh, rural areas. Uh, these are, you know, more station-based, more things where maybe like people in a municipality get together and say, hey, let's get a small fleet of these cars. And we park them, for example, in front of the, the city hall sort of as a public resource, right? Um, and you can book them and, and use them, et cetera. And so you don't have to rely on your own vehicle or, as Katya said, uh, you don't have to rely on your own fleet of cars, Right. Um, And so, I mean, especially for families that uh, own numerous cars, you know, this can be a way to start reducing also that car dependency. Um, Also for people who say, hey, look, I can, you know, I can work from home all the time. It might be more attractive. It might make more sense for me now to live in a rural area. And I like that idea for, you know, whatever reason. You know, I can maybe make that decision, move to a rural area and not feel that I have to buy a car because I have this option there. Um, but I totally agree. This is a, mobility is something that we need to be thinking of as a public service. So just as, you know, we ensure, for example, healthcare. care. Um, and so I also don't think that we uh, can rely on the, the car companies to fill this gap. And as we see right now, for example, they're not filling this gap because they're only uh, providing these services where it's very profitable. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about another case of the ongoing mobility blues, namely air travel. Stay tuned. I'm Rachel Tausendfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. This is Common Ground Berlin, and I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm the senior producer, Dina El Said. Each week, we bring you a podcast aimed at deepening your understanding of critical issues in Germany and beyond. But to make our podcast even better, it's important for us to hear what you think. You can share that with us by rating the show on your podcast app. You can also write us a review on the platform you use to listen to our episodes. We look forward to your feedback. And join us again next Monday on Common Ground Berlin. I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you.
Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin, and today we are talking about the impact of the Russian war in Ukraine on mobility. And I'm Rachel Tausenfeind of the German Marshall Fund. Joining us in the studio is Dirk from Schneidermesser of Changing Cities, an initiative specializing in democratic sustainability transformation. And joining us online are GMF senior fellow Peter Chase in Brussels and Katja Deal, who hosts the podcast She Drives Mobility and who is the author of Autocorrect, Mobility for a World Worth Living in. As I mentioned before the break, air travel has become a challenge, to put it mildly, not only because of the war, but because of the end of pandemic restrictions, which neither the airlines nor the airports were geared up for staff-wise. As a result, thousands of flights have been and continue to be canceled. People are told to plan extra time when going to the airport so they won't miss the flights because security is so slow and all kinds of other issues caused by staff shortages. Peter, is the EU looking to address this or is it being left to the member states? What are the costs and what are the measures being considered? Yes, the EU is trying to do what it can about to try to help on the mobility. But the issues that you're talking about in terms of aviation in the airport, those are really local. It has a lot to do with the local staffing, local crews. The EU law that governs things like availability of slots for airplanes to come in and out of an airport is actually very important because for a lot of companies, they don't want to give up their slots. And if they don't use their slots, they lose them. And that's an issue for them. But I think the EU as well, in terms of its broader sustainability objective, wants to shift more people away from taking airplanes for short hauls and put them on trains. That's one of the big parts of their whole aspect to mobility. And it is something that I think would make a difference here in Europe. The question about, um, I think, for a lot of Europeans is really one of, you know, they want to go distances. They want to go from the north of Germany to the south of France and vice versa during the summer months. And journeys like that are going to be a little bit too long for trains, so for a lot of people. So it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. I think most people, however, feel that it should be a temporary phenomenon. There's a transition that we're making from the time of COVID when no one moved at all to a time where a lot of people want to move and the resources just aren't there. Uh, It takes a while to put systems back together and when you had a very efficient system that got disrupted. Katja, as Peter mentioned, there's talk of expanding high-speed rail service like the Eurostar to Berlin. Overnight trains are going to be reintroduced. Some have already been reintroduced. Do you think rail can become an effective substitute for air travel in Europe, especially for these longer distances like Peter was talking about? We are living in an age of climate catastrophe. and I think we have to change mobility. And the first step, of course, is what we are doing right now, not to fly, not to go away, just to stay at home and have a Zoom meeting. So that's something I always point out that is the first and the best to do so. So just have and second, do I do this or can I stay at home? Katja, you're not going to relegate us to having Zoom meetings for the rest of our lives, right? (laughs) Our entire experience becomes... No, no, of course not. But people are forgetting about this. People are always doing now business trips in Germany, flying in Germany from A to B. This is something for me, it's horror that we are going back to this new normal, but not doing the good in the normal. I I like the night jet from Vienna to Hamburg. I can overnight, I can go from A to B, have a good sleep and someone who is serving me my breakfast in the morning. So I think we have to 
think about what is time, what is a really good time. Because for me, flying was always like a stress situation because you're running and you're doing things and you're going your liquids and, and I just step into the train. I have my own uh, seat. And for me, it's really luxury to think like this in, in the speed railway system. But realistically, I mean, you talk about the stress of flying. There's a lot of stress with rail travel these days, too. I mean, the ICEs are notoriously late. You miss your connections. What needs to happen to make the rail travel accessible to everyone? Yeah, but let's be honest. That's not because of rail being bad. It's about the policies in, in Germany and the politicians who are so car-centric for ages. And they are having not put the money into the system. And now it's bad because we are um, having infrastructure from the 50s, which is really something when you go to Japan or other um, um, countries, they wouldn't believe it, that we are not putting money into this kind of good system. So for me, it's being honest. Okay, we, we failed to have a good system in Germany, but we have to put the money into it and get it away from the car business. And it's about also being transparent about costs, not externalizing costs anymore, just to be honest, also what is about the price of a travel trip. Did you want to say something, Peter? Of course, I always want to, I always <laughs> want to say something. I, 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 so please. But I think it's, it's really important as we talk about this change in mobility. It's really important that people think seriously about the costs. Because running a train and the, the infrastructure and all of the carriages and the logistics of putting a system like that together and making it work well costs a hell of a lot of money. And if you were to try to cover the cost with the price of tickets, oh boy, your tickets would be really expensive. So already there are a lot of tensions that we need to think about. On, you know, on aviation, I grew up on airplanes. I love to be in an airplane. And I know a lot of people do love to be in airplanes too. But going from Hamburg to Berlin makes no sense at all by air. Dirk, let me ask you, we were talking about some of the policies, or Katya was talking about some of them. And so I'm wondering what you think about this policy that Federal Transportation Minister Volker Wissing put forward, that he wants to bundle rail construction projects in order to minimize disruptions under the motto, better one big closure than many small closures. Is that going to work, you think? Or is it just going to drive more people away from taking public transit or trains? I mean, so uh, what the train system has to be able to provide is for people to get from A to B regularly and also uh, reliably. And I think it's important, I think it's a good thought to bundle construction uh, projects and building projects um, and maintenance projects because especially also because of, like a procurement process takes a lot of time, to eats a lot of resources um, from the ministry uh, that they could be using to do other things. So if we can get as much of that crammed into one, uh, one project as possible and that project works well, that's a good thought. If, however, we're deciding we're going to uh, start a bunch of construction at the same moment when we're offering a nine euro ticket and we're also, you know, possibly unsure about what the goals of this nine euro ticket are and are also perhaps a bit worried uh, uh, of the demand that's coming, right? Um, I mean, this is kind of a situation uh, where the chief of the German rail system, uh, Mr. Lutz, you know, he's made some statements that suggest he's somewhat afraid of customers buying his product. 
right? Which does make you think, right? Um, you know, we this is something that we want. Not only uh, we want people on trains because we need uh, uh, people to be buying tickets, but it's also part of the mobility transition. We need people to be getting out of airplanes, out of uh, the car and into trains. Um, and so that's definitely something that needs to happen. We need to put a lot of money into building and maintenance of the tracks. Um, and, you know, you can question how that's being done and especially the time point of when it's being done. I would say important is that uh, people can get from A to B without too much of an inconvenience. So at a stretch that maybe is usually one hour uh, and is now four hours, that seems a bit unacceptable. That seems like one would have to have made uh, uh, different plans to say, you know, okay, one and a half hours or even two hours. Okay, I'll still jump in the train four hours Right. Um, so it's a, I think it's a question of dialing in uh, uh, this type of project. So to go back, we've been talking a lot about getting from A to B, but I want to go back to something Katya said. What about not going from A to B? What about staying home more? She mentioned the sort of value of Zoom. Um, I know we at GMF Berlin, we're returning to the office soon. We're having official policy. It's more open to um, home office than it was before. We can stay home two days a week, but they want us back in the office three days a week. What are we seeing as a general trend in Germany? Are businesses more open to people working from home and traveling less? Or do you think we're going to return to pre-pandemic, you know, office requirements and the sort of normal day-to-day -day A to B travel? Um, well, okay, so uh, with Changing Cities, we're actually looking for a new office right now. And, <laughs> uh, you know, like sort of all the all of these anecdotes that people say, oh, you know, people don't need offices anymore. P you know, companies are not going to be actually maintaining their office space, etc. Um, if you're looking for an office, that does not seem to be the case. The, the price of office space um, is not sinking as far as I can tell. I think, of course, uh, it needs to be, uh, I mean, we need to think about you know, why are we coming together? Why do we have offices? What type of teams do we have? It might be different, you know, if, I, if I'm if i working to, say, create a concept for an inner city that my team might uh, have to see each other very often as opposed to if I have, say, a team of bookkeepers um, that are each working on their own projects, right? So, I mean, I think it's a question. I do think it's important for people to go out into public space and have this transit where we encounter one another as citizens on the way to work. Um, also, in terms of health, that we're not just sitting around our house all the time, but we actually go and walk uh, to work or cycle to work etc. I do think that we uh, at the same time need to be making sure we've got policies in place that are steering uh, sort of like this coming back to work like at the office or going to meetings, going to conferences, etc. Currently, we still don't have uh, tax on kerosene. So airplane fuel is not taxed, which is setting the completely wrong signal. A number of years ago, the German train uh, company uh, removed all of the night trains. We talked about that a, a few moments ago. Um, that is also a catastrophic failure because, I mean, I think it was Sweden as uh, uh, like a parliament uh, said, hey, look, we're living in the time of the climate crisis. We want to be relevant in Europe, but we can't be flying around to meetings around Europe. We need our you know scientists to go to conferences. We need our politicians uh, to go around and talk to our allies, etc. 
So we need a way to get there. So they said, you know, it's going to be a project to ensure that the Swedish rail company is doing its part to ensure night trains uh, so that these types of trips are possible. And sure, that might mean you're in transit longer, but um, it's a very comfortable way. I mean, you sleep. Uh, it's like a hotel where you kind of warp from one space to the other. Um, and I think that's something that could definitely pick up uh, a lot of the slack. But we need to start yesterday. And we in Germany have not started. Dirk, that's a great segue to what is my final question, and we can ask uh, our other two guests to answer this, and that's what next steps are needed towards sustainable mobility to not only reduce our carbon footprint, but to make life easier for people, either on a German or a European level. And we'll start with Peter with the European level. You know, th this has been a really inter interesting discussion. It has to be because we as humans, we move all the time. Mobility is something that is now almost taken for granted. The change in our lifestyles is not going to be as great as maybe we're talking about it, because we need to bear in mind that we all work in the services industry. Services industry allows us to do some things by Zoom that someone who's doing other work may not be able to do, which brings me back to the auto industry. And Katja mentioned that how the auto industry, the German economy, the German politicians are oriented towards the auto industry, in part because there are a lot of people working in it, and not just in Germany. Of course, in Poland and Hungary and Slovakia, many, many workers in all of those countries supply the German auto industry. So this transition from how we move is more than just a transition from how we move. It's also a transition for how we make things and how our societies run. And it's not just in our countries, but it's also in countries around the world where similar changes are trying to be made. I think that we may need to think seriously as well about other fuels. In, in terms of the aviation area, there are sustainable aviation fuels. A lot of them are built on electrolysis. It's necessary for the use of renewables. But there's also biofuels. And biofuels have run into some problems. But there are advanced biofuels that are much more sustainable that would allow for different types of even maintaining the internal combustion engine, which is a question of work. These are actually big questions and as urgent as the climate change issue is, we haven't yet figured out how we're going to reconfigure ourselves as a society. Again, not just in terms of how we move, but how we move is directly related to how we organize ourselves. There is a debate about all these issues at the European level. There are a lot of people, including many German politicians, who wonder whether or not the climate transformation and the mobility transformation we have political costs that haven't yet been figured in, and political costs that, going back to the beginning of this, have been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine and by the, the disruption of fossil fuels. Those changes are in many ways good and necessary, but we can't kid ourselves that they are disruptive, and we need to think about how do we help people adjust to meet these disruptions. Katya, what do you think? 
I think that uh, Peter mentioned uh, some really um, um, important topics. We need a change of society. There is just this thin layer of mobility change and there's so many problems uh, beyond this. And I think it's regarding all the isms we got in mobility that people are pushed into the car because they are not feeling safe in public. So we have so many problems that are beyond just mobility. And we also had to be like more correct about um, why people are driving a car. It's about the lack of alternatives. It's about what uh, Dirk uh, mentioned before, that there's so much uh, money pushed into this kind of system. So it's too cheap. And I think um, we have a great chance to reshape it and um, yeah, to have a better future for all of us. Dirk, is there anything you wanted to add after hearing those two answers? Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, uh, I, I agree with Katya. I think uh, Peter made also some important points. I would uh, disagree with him. You know, I don't take this sort of cornucopian approach to, hey, there's all this technology and there are all these potential fuels that could maybe help us, you know, surmount these challenges in the future. We have what we need to ensure a safe and a sustainable mobility now. We have trains, we have uh, bicycles, we have buses, we have streetcars, we have boats, right? We have the ingredients that we need. Sure, maybe we can optimize some of it with some uncertain technology that might pop up along the horizon. Um, but we have what we need now to do this. Um, but we are so stuck in sort of like this this yearning for sort of like everything and wrapped in bacon, that we're not taking advantage of these options that we have on the table right now that we have experience with, that we know how to do. Peter Norton, a historian who just wrote a book this year called Autonomarama, uh, described in this book uh, how sort of safe car driving has been since about the 1930s just a couple of years over the future, like over the horizon. It's just a couple of years out. And every time this promise is renewed by the automobile industry, something else comes in. Um, autonomous driving is the latest one. The, the time before that, it was sustainability. So now sustainable, autonomous, safe, uh, people-friendly driving is just a couple of years over the future. I don't see it coming. I don't see it happening in the time horizon that we need it to happen. Um, so let's use what we have now. And let's get to work because we don't have time. And speaking of time, we're out of time. So we will have to leave it there. Joining us in the studio was Dirk von Schneidermesse of Changing Cities, an initiative specializing in democratic sustainability transformation. Thank you, Dirk. Thank you. And online, we were joined by GMF Senior Fellow Peter Chase from our Brussels office and Katja Diel, who hosts the podcast She Drives Mobility and author of the book called Autocorrect, Mobility for a World Worth Living in. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Katja. Thank you. Thanks very much. And thank you for listening. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund of the German Marshall Fund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All Common Ground Berlin and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our respective podcasts' websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.